The most important thing is to attract great people. Business continues to grow. More and more people get in. Be better prepared than everybody. You've got your best chance. I think it's a tremendous time to sell your company. Welcome to the Uncommon Results Show, where we uncover the strategies and tactics to help you and your business grow faster, increase profits, and realize richer exits. Here's your host, Pete Martin. Hey, this is Pete Martin, your host of the Uncommon Results Show and the founder of Ask My Board. And today, our guest is John Warlow. Hey, John, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good, and I'm uh, I'm coming from Cleveland, Ohio, and across this little body of water we call Lake Erie in Toronto. John is sitting today, so exactly. great to have you on the show, man. It's great to so be with you. Just for a brief brief background, so John is the founder of Value Builder Systems, and he's the author of um, a couple of books. One we're going to talk about today. So he's the author of a book called Built to Sell, The Automatic Customer. He also hosts the Built to Show radio show where he interviews entrepreneurs and business owners that have successfully sold their companies. But today, we're gonna to talk about John's newest book, which is called The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top. This book is it's the third in his series, um, and it's all designed to help business owners improve their business and put them into a position where they can achieve financial and personal freedom. So again, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, it's good to be with you. So let's start out with the big, why question. So you've spent pretty much your entire career helping entrepreneurs and, and business owners grow their businesses and you know get to this financial and personal freedom that a lot of people start their businesses to achieve and some get there and some don't. Um, tell me a little bit about what, what drives you to serve this audience. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something I've been thinking about a little bit lately. And um, I think it goes back to when I was a kid. So I emigrated, this is a heavy answer, but I emigrated from England to Toronto, Canada with my folks. And I think I've always felt a, a little bit like an outsider. Uh, I didn't fit in at school and I didn't really love university. Felt like a bit of an outsider there. And I think in a funny way, I didn't go through the traditional business training that a lot of people go through. And I kind of came to the realization when I was about 25 that I kind of missed the boat. <laughs> like, it's like someone didn't tell me that you should study business in undergrad and then you should go get an MBA and, and, and you should go work for Procter & Gamble or, or investment bank or something. And I kind of I kind of realized, man, I, I, I've been sleeping through this whole thing. Yet at the same time, I was very ambitious. Like I was, I wanted to make a mark. I wanted to be successful. And yet I felt like I had sort of missed the bus and, and, and so chose to focus on entrepreneurship as a career. And I kind of feel like a lot of entrepreneurs on some level are outsiders, right? Like they, they chose yeah. not to go work at Procter and Gamble or Ford. And, and, and oftentimes they get kind of, they get kind of taken advantage of. I know I felt personally, like I didn't know a lot about selling a company. And, and I also think a lot of entrepreneurs bear the brunt of the, you know, when things don't go well, they, they end up wearing it. And, I guess on some level, I've just felt like I wanted to serve entrepreneurs because they seem like they get a bit of a rough 
a, a bad deal sometimes. And uh, that's probably the most honest answer. I know it's a bit convoluted, but. Yeah, no, 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 that's great. Um, you know, it's interesting. I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs or people who want to be an entrepreneur, right? Particularly that come from corporate America. And my first question is, do you really, really want to do this? Let me tell you some more stories. And if you can deal with this stuff, then, you know, maybe you've got a shot, but yeah, it's, it's definitely not for everyone for sure. You don't, you, your English accent, you don't have it at all. My, my, no, I mean, my, I, again, my, I immigrated here when I was like five, like I was, okay. I was tiny. I, I should have gotten over it by now, but, but <laughs> I think that sense of, of never being, you know, the first pick for the team, the, the never, the, the kind of the, the person that you would, is just a little bit on the outside, on the yeah. on the periphery. Not you know, like not a, like a complete freak, but just never right on the inside. And yep. so, nope, it, I, you know. I get it a hundred percent. Yeah. So, so the book, "The Art of Selling Your Business," is really a culmination of hundreds of interviews you've done over a, a long time of talking to business owners about the processes they went through for selling their companies, and you you weave a lot of their stories into the book, which makes the book that much richer because you can talk about these very personal experiences from these people. But you don't talk about your own exits. You had four exits, right? And your last one was to a public company, which is pretty interesting. So based on your four exits and all this accumulated knowledge that you have, if you were to go do over again, sell a loan company again, what would you do differently this time than what you did the time before when you successfully exited? Yeah, it's a great, it's a good question. And, and you're right. I, I think the art of selling your business as a book is not about my own personal experience. Cause I think it frankly pales in comparison to the archive or the library of, of interviews I've done. So I I'm, I'm happy to kind of share my own personal experience, but it's, it's over a relatively small number of case studies, whereas the art of selling your business is like hundreds. And so I've tried to derive the lessons. But for me, um, you know, I think I probably would have uh, been more proactive working with the M&A professional that we worked with to ensure that the folks that I thought should buy the company were, were on their list. I, I, I sort of abdicated responsibility on that and saying, oh, well, if, you know, if, you know, if, if you're sure that they're, you know, there'd be a good buyer, then, then, then let's do that. And I, I think I probably would have uh, driven that process a little bit more. Their job would have continued to be to reach out to those folks, but I think I just could have done a better job of, of, because they didn't know our industry and I was trying to, you know, educate right. them on that fund. But I think, you know, I think I should have probably been a lot more proactive on, on developing the long list of potential acquirers. That's a fairly technical response to that question, but that's probably, that's probably the most truthful answer I could give you. Well, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, the, if it's truly a strategic and they truly see the value and they, they buy the story, then everything else kind of falls into place, right? As long as you run a good process. So it's, it, it's a fair, and it's a fair answer. And I think it's an accurate answer that that target group that you're going after, you know, de defines everything, right? Whether you sell or not and under what terms and under what price. So yeah, it makes, it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I talk in the book and uh, about this five to 20 rule, which is stated that basically the natural acquirer for your business is somewhere between five and 20 times the size of your operating business. Now in your case, it was like 
not applicable. It was your, your acquirer was much larger, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs will find that the most natural acquirers, the ones that have the most interest are somewhere between five and 20 times the size because it's a material enough acquisition that's going to move the needle, but it's not so large that it's a bet the company kind of decision. So I think having that lens of the natural acquires is probably a pretty good filtering process. Did you put the initial list together for your M&A folks or did they completely come up with a list on their own? After you I put the initial the list together. Yeah, I put the initial list together. And at the time, this goes back a long time, not Pete, but at the time, private equity group, private equity was around as an acquiring you know, option, but nascent relative to what it is today. And sure. clearly today, you know, one of the things that I think good, good exits have in common is they get lots of acquirers to the table. And right now we've got so many private equity groups chasing so few deals that you can almost always get some private equity to the table. And yeah. you may not want to sell to private equity, but having them there, you know, make sure that you've got some competitive tension. So I think that's, uh, that's a luxury that, that owners have today that maybe they wouldn't have had 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines chasing deals, right? These guys have LPs and they need to get this money out there and, and get it invested. So um, that's driving a lot of that interest. Yeah. So you mentioned in the book, this notion of pull factors versus push factors, which I really like. And, and for those of you who haven't read it yet, and you need to go out and get the book, the, the concept is, are you moving towards something or away from something? And if you're the guy who's completely sick of the business, employee issues, customer issues, supplier issues, you know, and you want to get out for that reason, that's a push factor. If you're somebody who has a goal in the future, you want to retire, you want to buy that yacht, whatever, that's a pull factor. So my question to you is, um, have you found any material difference in either valuation of the company or deal terms that were influenced by or informed by an owner that was either moving towards a new future or they just wanted to get out? What's your sense there? Because I suspect mm, across question. all the interviews is we've got both people on both sides there, right? Yeah, you do. And I, I mean, I, th I don't have the, the objective answer. I can give you a qualitative answer. And it's, it comes down to causation as opposed to correlation. So sure. I, I think what you would find if you looked at the, at the data set, again, almost 300 interviews I did, the ones were that were mostly push factors, things that, you know, owners that were frustrated, um, probably telegraphed that to the buyer and ultimately got worse deals as a result. You know, there, one of the things we write about in the book is like, how do you answer the question, why do you want to sell? Because it's a very innocuous sounding question, but the answer to it can be incredibly important, right? Because if you say, look, I'm tired, I can't stand Biden, I can't stand Trump, whatever, you know, like whoever you want, like you could, you could complain about whoever you want, doesn't really matter. The end of the day, um, that's the wrong way to answer the question. Because what you need to communicate to a buyer is that you're excited about the future, that you're wanting to be part of, you know, part of a transition, that you think the business's best days are in front of you. And so I think the push, like being all push factor starts to kind of seep into your, your narrative with, with a buyer. And so you can kind of fake it for a period of time, but, but not for, not forever. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, that being said, there's a lot of companies that, that, they have such a compelling pull factor that that they you know the valuation is not necessarily their most important criteria. I'm, I'm reminded of the story of Sean Oshman. So Sean, 
episode number 100 uh, in Built Cell Radio. To this day, the, the number one episode in our archive uh, is this guy, Oshman, who built a, an IT consulting business. Not a very fancy, sexy business. They get, did a couple million bucks in revenue based in Denver. And Oshman had always had this dream of living on a sailboat. And so he decided that by the time he was 40, he would sell his company and take the proceeds and buy a boat. And he did exactly that. At the age of 39, he said, okay, I got a year, hired a broker. The broker came back, got a two to three times uh, multiple for his IT you know, consulting business, which is a pretty kind of average ho-hum multiple. And when I spoke to Oshman, I, I kind of put it to him and I said like, hey, like that's not a, I mean, it's not a massive multiple or it's not yeah. like... And he said, you know what? I'm happy as a clam. I'm living on a sailboat. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, and I think that was really emblematic for me of the benefits of having pull factors. It takes the pressure off of squeezing the acquire for every last nickel. And, you know, you know, it's just like, I'm, I'm going to something as opposed to away from something. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So you're a good straight man. You mentioned Biden and Trump. So, you know, we're doing this show in early 2021. We're still in the midst of a global pandemic. And in the U.S., we have a new administration with President Biden. Um, while all this stuff has been going on the last year, the public stock markets are, you know, completely oblivious to the economy. Um, and the valuations of private companies seem to be higher than ever um, based on a, a bunch of different factors. In the art of selling your business, you talk very specifically about trying not to time the market when selling your business. So considering all of this stuff that's going on here in the US and North America, does that change your mind at all, right? This is a once in a, once in a century you know, um, thing that's going on with the pandemic. Does it, does it change your advice about, you know, well, since considering all this and valuations are up, stock market's up, maybe this is a good time to sell in 2021 or, or do you say it doesn't matter? Yeah, look, I think it's a, I think it's a tremendous time to sell your company. There is, as you say, lots of money chasing deals. Interest rates are low. Of course, valuations work in the opposite direction with interest rates, right? So interest rates are low, valuations go up because acquirers can borrow more money and get a better ROI. So as long as interest rates remain low, and there seems to be no indication in sight that they will start going up, I would think that we're in this sort of asset inflation period where the value of privately held companies are going up. That being said, I don't think it's worth trying to time the sale of your business on external factors. So trying to kind of be too cute, threading the needle, finding the exact moment where interest rates drop another quarter point and the economy goes another 10%. That, all of that is just getting a little too cute because at the end of the day, when you sell your company, you're going to have to do something with the money. You can't just put it in your, in your, in your mattress or under your mattress. You've got to, you've got to invest it. And the same, generally speaking, bubble that is being created by low interest rates is going to affect almost any asset class you choose to invest in, right? So commercial real estate, vacation property, residential real estate, stock market. I mean, it's all you know generally affected by the same. And so I think it's much better to think about your business in the context of, of, of how it's performing, how you're your tracking and when you've got your pre-diligence done. And so pre-diligence, and we talked about this because Pete, I know, you know, when, when I talked about your exit, I mean, it wasn't your first. And so you'd done some pre-diligence, but for folks who haven't kind of heard of pre-diligence, effectively diligence that you would do after signing a letter of intent, but you do it beforehand. And, and there's a story in the book from a guy named Michael Houlihan who started Barefoot Winery. And, uh, 
And he taught me about the two benefits of having pre-diligence because Barefoot was this great wine. Uh, you get it at Trader Joe's and, you know, built lots of distribution. And, and, and Houlihan decided he wanted to sell it to Ian J. Gallo, which is the largest sort of winemaker in the United States. And so he knows he's got one shot to impress Ian J. Gallo. So he does his pre-diligence. He puts the binders together. In his case, it was physical binders, all of the contracts, employee contract, customer contracts, et cetera. And he goes to Ian J. Gallo with all of his ducks in a row and says, look, you know, we're thinking of exiting. Would you like to buy us? Now, two things happen. Number one, Ian J. Gallo made an acquisition offer knowing and seeing how professional Houlihan was in the process. The second thing though, and this is the hidden thing that Houlihan told me, he said, the second thing is that they knew we were dressed for the dance. They knew that if, if, if they didn't buy us, we were going to take those binders and take them to their biggest competitor. And that's the magic of having pre-diligence. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's, it's like, why would I ever do all the work until I get an offer? When I get an offer, I'll do the work, right? And yet, I think it's a fool's errand in the sense that number one, you're going to have to do it anyways. But number two, if you show up without those, that pre-diligence done, um, it just kills deal momentum. And, uh, and, and uh, I've always remembered that story from Houlihan and, and the sale of Barefoot to Ian J. Gallo. You know, there's a, there's, there's a third piece of that too. And it, it uh, correlates with um, Mark Cuban and Mark Benioff both said, every company should be public. And their point behind that was you, you clean up a lot of stuff, right? And so in addition to pre-diligence, you figure out, oh my God, we don't have contracts with our, some of these customers. We don't have contracts, employment agreements with our employees. And it, it really kind of forces you to, to evaluate your own internal operations and figure out what's missing, right? Or what are potential blind spots? So yeah, it's so, it, ton it's of benefits. so, so important. I, another, another story in the book, a guy named Jay Steinfeld, who built blinds.com up into a hundred million dollar company and then sold it to Home Depot. Awesome. And I asked Jay, like, tell me how you did this. What was your secret? And he said, I ran quarterly board meetings with an external advisory board and my management team had to present to the board and they ran it like a public company. And it was to that level of scrutiny. And I said, but were you public? And he said, no, we were privately held, but I was an accountant by training, right? Mm -hmm. And so Steinfeld grew up as an accountant, was an accountant in his earlier career. And so that was what he knew. And he ran those board meetings complete with external advisors and internal you know, people pitching into... It's a big part of how he was able to sell to Home Depot. Wow, that's an awesome story. So the show is called Uncommon Results. We, we really try to focus on extraordinary situations of businesses that either had incredible growth or big exits for you know, any entrepreneur or business owner. And so we try to distill those down into really valuable lessons for all of us that run companies to improve our own outcomes. So as, as you look back over the 300 stories you've heard, and maybe you've mentioned a couple here, maybe uh, this blinds.com was the last one. What are the stories that really stick out to you is just extraordinary. And however you define that in terms of an exit, you know, whether it's price terms, speed, you know, whatever it is, what are the ones that just pop in your brain and go, man, that was, that was a hell of a deal. Thanks for listening to the Uncommon Results Show. Be sure to click below to subscribe to the show for more lessons on how to grow, scale, and sell your business. Until then, here's to your growth.